0: Well, good morning, everybody. Nice to see you. It's been uh, a couple weeks, so I'm glad to be back here with you. I, I don't often get uh, two Sundays off in a row. Uh, it's pretty amazing when that happens. So I'm really grateful to uh, to Wayne for stepping up and the elders for filling in the different holes there and uh, Jacob from Tri-Valley who uh, did the video sermon for us last week. So I hope that you were blessed uh, by those things. Uh, I want to remind you to please silence your cell phones if they are not silenced. Please take it out and do that at this time. Uh, We're starting a new, very short series today. I mean it this time. Like, this one is short. It has to be. Um, And uh, it's called uh, Low-Key Small Lives Made Big. So for the next three weeks, we are going to look at unexpected and perhaps little-known people who made a big impact in the world because God worked through their lives. And this is what we all want, isn't it? I mean, we want God to work in us and through us. We want God to use us to make a difference in this world. We want God to work somehow, some good through what we do and who we are. And we know that God works through our lives in all sorts of ways, ways that are big and ways that are small, and we also know that sometimes we don't really, we're not really aware of what God is doing, and and maybe don't even discover how God has used us until much later, or through the words of someone else or an encouragement that we get from them. So this is really the first principle for this series that I want to share with you, and let's just get it out in the open. If you are open to it, God can work in you in every moment. And this is good news for us, you see. Like, that should make you happy. Um, Because it means that we are never far from God doing something in our lives. I want you to think about that for a second. We are never far from God doing something in our lives. But it also points to something else that is important, and that is we need to be receptive to whatever God is doing around us in order for him to do something in our lives. Now, while I am certainly appreciative of that God works in my life all the time, there is a part of me as as a leader of a church that wants God to do not just small things or little things. I want God to do big things. Uh, and, and that may be something strange to hear, but from your pastor, but it's true. I, I, I want God to do big things through me, uh, through this church, through all of us that are here. And, and I want what I do and what we do and who we are to make a difference. I want to be a part of God changing the world somehow. I really do. Like I, And doesn't it though, sometimes you know we, we want this and we desire this but we don't know how that's going to happen or what form it's going to take or even if it ever will happen in the way that we want it to. So it's one of the underlying questions I want us to explore a little bit over the next three weeks. How does this happen, God, changing the world through someone? How how do we have maybe a dynamic world-changing experience? How do we become difference makers in the world around us. Now, to give us a little bit of perspective just on how this might work, I want to talk about a very specific experience that I've had that maybe some of you have had as well. Growing up, I went to Yosemite for a week every year during the summer, Uh, Yosemite Family Encampment, you might remember uh, that. And several friends and families from church would go, and it was always one of the best my best weeks of the year. It was just a great time. We, there were lots of fun things to do. While we were there, we would ride our bikes, go for hikes, play in the river, jump off bridges. It was a good time. Um, the one thing that we all looked forward to from the time that we were little kids until we actually did it was the year when we were old enough to hike Half Dome. Uh, that's that's the big thing, you know, that I made it to the top. T-shirts, like everybody wanted that stuff, and and it's for a good reason. Half Dome, as you know, is a Yosemite icon. Can you pull up the picture? There we go. Is Yosemite icon and the one thing that people want to do when they visit the park. In fact, so many people were hiking Half Dome that they had, they now require permits to hike Half Dome, and only a certain number of people can do it every year. <clears throat> everybody wants to do it, but the hike itself is no joke. It is a 14 to 16 mile. Why is it 14 to 16? I'm not sure. (laughs) This is from the National Park uh, webpage. Uh, It's 14 to 16 miles. Apparently some people find extra miles in there while other people, while other people don't. With a round, with an elevation gain of 4,800 feet from start to finish. And it typically takes hikers uh, 10 to 12 hours to complete the hike. Uh, I think it took me when I did it, somewhere around the 10 to 12 hour range. I I did have a friend, though, who got up early, like at 6 o'clock one day, and ran up to the top of Half Dome and back. Um, He was young and stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I was young and lazy, so I was not about to do that. And the, the hike uh, starts with really steep stairs that take you past Vernal and Nevada Falls just to make sure you're really tired by the time. It's so many stairs, so many rock stairs that you have to climb. And then you get to a portion of the hike where you're on relatively flat, flat ground as you go across Little Yosemite Valley and make your way towards the summit of Half Dome. And when you finally reach the base of the final summit, this is what is waiting for you. It is what looks like a straight-up climb of 400 feet to the top. And there are cables that are strung uh, all the way up, and then these little, like, wood pieces that you can stand on as you're climbing up the mountain. Now, uh, just to give you, you know, some more perspective, the good news from the National Park Service is that since 1919, relatively few people have fallen and died on the cables relatively few. Uh, they don't quantify it for some reason. Um, but that you know is supposed to be, I don't know, calming in some way. So think about it. You have hiked roughly eight, eight and a half miles to get to this point. and um, you're now staring at the last 400 feet and trying to not have an accident in your pants. And there are a lot of people, including Janice, who was here earlier, who get to this point and decide, yeah, I, I, have, I have seen what I have come to see, I don't need to go this extra 400 feet, I feel satisfied with who I am as a person, and I choose life, <clears throat> Why do they make this choice? Because this is pretty scary and intimidating. Um, Anything could happen. Uh, Namely, falling. Falling could happen. Uh, It doesn't even matter, really, how many people have not fallen when you're standing at the bottom looking up at this. No, it doesn't really matter at all. It takes a certain amount of courage, trust, and dedication to get to the top. And not everyone who gets to this point can do it. Because they, they, see, they see this site. They see how steep it is. They see these suspicious-looking poles poked into the side of a mountain. And they decide that it's just not for them. As we begin to look at the way that God has made small lives big, we are going to look at how this happened in the lives of different individuals. But it's important for us to note that the person we are going to look at today, his success happens on the back of the failure of others. He comes through where other people failed to come through for God. And in particular, there were three people in his life that failed. Their names were Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema. I know they're like your favorite three people from the Bible. Who are Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema? They are part of one of the most famous and well-known stories in the Bible. You know who these guys are, actually. You don't know you know, but you do know. From 1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 8 through 15. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us." Then the Philistine said, "This day I defy the armies of Israel." Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all of the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The first one was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah david was the youngest the three oldest followed saul but david went back and forth from saul to tend his father's sheep at bethlehem eliab abinadab and shema are the older brothers of david yes that david this would likely be their claim to fame you're the brother of david yes david david yes he is our brother And for the rest of their lives, they would become known as the brother of the giant killer, the brother of the great warrior, the brother of the king. And there's a question that lingers in my mind when I look at these three guys. And it's this, why are these stories not about them? Why are they about their brother? We learn a great deal about Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema from their approach to the situation with Goliath. And they are not alone in how they see the world. You know the situation. Israel was at war with uh, the Philistines. They had come to this place where they were facing each other across the field of battle, and they had reached this sort of point of a standoff, and each was On its own hill. Each army was on its own hill with this small valley in between them. Goliath was coming out every day and challenging the Israelites to combat. The best Israelite fighter would come out to fight him, and whichever warrior lost, their army would become subject to the victor's army, which seemed like a really good deal to Goliath because he's Goliath. And he was defiant, and he had good reason to be. By all accounts, he was a giant, and you would have to be crazy in order to go out and fight this guy one-on-one. On one. There was no one within Israel's army who could physically match him. The Bible describes him in this way. He, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was nine feet nine inches tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 125 pounds. So he's basically wearing Zeke around. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 15 pounds. He's a big dude and because he's a big dude, he has big things. He has big weapons, he has big armor. Everything about him is big. And on hearing the Philistines' words, what does it say? When, when he goes out there and he challenges all of them to battle, they were what? Terrified and dismayed. Terrified, why? Because this is a scary dude. And dismayed because why? What, what do they think? No one can beat him. No one can He is too big, he is too strong, there is too much of him. And not, I guess, not really a surprise to any of us, no one wants to go and fight him. This went on for a little while, Uh, 40 days. He would come out and he would shout at the Israelites, he would challenge them, he would challenge their God. And when David arrived at the camp after this 40 days to deliver supplies to his brothers, he heard heard what Goliath was saying. Goliath came out to issue his challenge. He stepped out to speak, and everyone ran and hid. Starting in verse 25 of 1 Samuel 17. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Uh, So, right? How can we sweeten this pot here? What's going to take to get you in this deal today? Uh, What if... What if, you know, you get great glory from this? What if, uh, what if you get the king's daughter? What if you get uh, exemption from taxes for the rest of your life? And, and I love that there's this sort of, I don't know, let's call it this conversation happening within the, Reis, the Israelite camp, which is like, do you hear what this guy's saying every day? Yeah, I heard it. You hear what they're going what, what to give the guy who goes out and fights him? Yeah, boy, that's a good deal. Yep. So what do you think is for lunch today? (laughs) I I don't know. So David is there. He hears this. And in in verse 26, David asks the men standing near him what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Now, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? How many of you have a brother? (laughs) So there's good news for you. Whatever it was like with your brother, it has been happening since biblical times. Um, But there's something interesting that we see sort of in this part of the story. David has come to see his brothers to make this delivery, and he cannot wrap his mind around what he is seeing and hearing. And there's a particular reason why he cannot wrap his mind around what he is seeing and hearing. He wonders out loud How is it that this guy can come out and challenge the armies of the living God? David was incredulous that this has been allowed to continue. And so he started asking people about it and what's going on and why hasn't this stopped. And Eliab, part of the hiding, scared-to-death army of God... Got really mad at David. And says some pretty nasty things to him, honestly. You're just a shepherd. Who's taking care? Of, you, you, get, you get what he's saying here? Who's taking care of those few sheep? Listen, you're not even important at home. What makes you think you can ask anybody anything here? And, and I know who you are, by the way. You're conceited, and, and all you want is attention, and all you wanted to, t- was to do was to come and see battle, to see people die. Be quiet, because you don't know what you're talking about. So here's the deal, and this is really the key, I think, part to this Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema were looking at the situation, and when they looked out, they saw it just like all of the other Israelites did. There was a giant ready to kill them. They had followed their king Saul out to this place, and they were stuck, and there wasn't much hope for them. Because, again, they're looking around, and they're saying, no one can match this guy, and no one is volunteering. And by this point, they were scared, bitter, and unwilling to move. Because there's a giant in front of them. And church, that's why this story is not about them. That's why. God will not make people do world changing things. David can't let it go, he talked about it so much. <laughs> that word got back to Saul, who called David in to meet with him. David told Saul that he would go out and fight the Philistine with a kind of like, listen, I'll take care of this joker. And Saul told him that there was no way he could go out and fight this giant who had been trained as a warrior since birth. But David was defiant, and for a good reason. From verse 34 through 37, David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear." This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. There's something interesting about David, and I don't know why no one else has this. I don't. I mean, we know how unique David is, as a servant of God, particularly in the first half of his life. But he looks at his life, and he says, I've been in danger before, and God has brought me through these dangerous moments. You know, it sounds like David is kind of bragging, and is kind of conceited, but there is a reason why he is telling these stories to Saul. And his point is, I have faced things that are terrifying. And I have beaten these things. Do you know why I have beaten these things? Because God gave me the power to do it. Why does he have confidence? Because he looks back and recognizes what God has done in his life up to this point. And he has confidence that God will continue To do things in his life and to empower him to do bigger things. That's part of it. But the second part is this He equates Goliath to animals. And he says, just because this guy is big, it doesn't mean he's bigger than God. In fact, To God, he is nothing but an animal. And just as God brought these animals, delivered me from these animals, helped me survive these situations, he will not let me fall to this thing. As Paul would later put it, in much more succinct terms, if God is for us, then who can be against us? So David went to face the Philistine giant trained as a warrior uh, from the time he was old enough to walk with a bag of rocks. Verse 45 through 47. This is the best part. Keep in mind, he's like a little kid. He was like 12, 13, 14. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. David needs to make this speech. He does. And here's what he said. I'm not afraid because God is going to win this. In fact, God has already won this. You just don't know it yet. But you're about to find out. David became God's champion, seemingly the only one in a nation of people who were afraid, who realized that God was on their side, the almighty God, the all-powerful God. And he was ready to step out of this huddle of doubters and into the strength of God. And this, I think, is the important thing about David in this story. And it involves how he saw the world. Where everyone else, everyone else, saw a giant and certain death, David saw just a man who could not stand and defy the living God. And somehow he was the only one in the army of God that understood this. This is why these stories are about him, or maybe more appropriately, about God working through him. Now, perhaps it seems weird to start a series about lesser-known people by talking about David. He is certainly not a lesser-known person. But this story is an important place for us to start so that we can understand how God works in the lives of his people, because here is the dirty secret about David and Goliath. Anyone could have been David. You see, anyone David was not called specifically to this job. He just happened to be there. And anyone over the previous 40 days could have stepped into this gap and said, you cannot defy God. And God would have given that person victory. If they had trusted God more, if they had been able to check their fear at the door, if they had been able to... See a world in which God really is the ultimate power, if they had been able to accept that God was fighting for them because they were his army, if they had been willing to step out and allow God to work mightily through them, this story could have been about Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema instead of the story of the little brother that was always getting on their nerves. In a world where the non-threatening and safe is always easier, in the story of David, we see that someone has to step up and start allowing God to do the hard work through their lives in this world. So how do we do this? How do we make a difference? How do we leave a mark for God in this world? So here's just some of the things I think we learn from this story. Number one, we need to believe in the power of God. Like, really, church. Like, we need to believe in the power of God. And like David, we need to have conviction in who God is apart from who we are. Because Israel facing Goliath only saw what they couldn't do on their own you see. They only saw what they were incapable of, and therefore they were afraid, terrified, dismayed. But David, while he believes these things are certainly true about him, that he Uh, can be defeated, he doesn't believe that God can be defeated because he knows, he believes with all of his heart that God is the all-powerful God. And if he goes out into battle on behalf of God and God's people, then God will not let him fall. He understood how great and powerful God is and that no one can speak about God like that. And his belief in the power of God is what drove him into action. It was his confidence in God, not his confidence in himself. He knew who God was. Secondly, we have to believe that God will make a difference in this world. That God is still moving and acting and doing things all around us. It's easy to think that we can't really change anything to go with the flow and, and, and to just kind of roll with whatever comes our way. But God does intend for us to change the world through his power, through the Holy Spirit, and through the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to believe when we face a seemingly unbeatable opponent that we can overcome because God wants us to overcome for his name's sake. That the world would know he is God. Thirdly, we have to believe that God can use us in any circumstance. Does God work through his people? I'm sorry, that was terribly, not even an effort on your part. Um, Does God work through his people? Is God capable of working in any moment? And if you believe that's true, then expect it to happen and look for what God is doing because there may be an opportunity right in front of you that you have ignored for some reason. And lastly, step out in faith. The only way to have, I think, a great God experience and to be part of what God is doing and changing the world is that we have to stop living our lives with what feels comfortable for us and accept that God maybe wants to push us into something that is difficult or hard or challenging or something that we, don't, we may not even see how to get through. We have to be willing to step out. Do you know how many people have actually fallen off the cables and died in the more than 100 years they've been up? Nine. That's a relatively small number. For something that seems so scary and dangerous, which it is, the looks can be deceiving. And for how many thousands of people that have gone up And down that thing. Nine have died. How many Israelites died at the hands of Goliath? None that we're aware of. They haven't even entered into battle yet. What's my point? My point is it may appear that things are insurmountable, but God needs people who will have confidence in Him and who will step out. Into what he could do. And I don't know that it's important to God that you summit a Half Dome, but he might want you to face with his power what everyone else sees as a giant. And he might want you to step out in front of that giant and say, You're not facing me, you're facing the living God. This battle is already won. You may not know it yet, but you're about to find out. Because I serve the living, all-powerful God. Let's be a people who are receptive to the work that God wants to do in any situation. Let us trust that God wants to work through us. And let us look for his plans around every corner. Because we are never far away from God changing the world through us. Amen? Amen? Amen. It's the same God who said this to his people when they were away in exile. Weren't sure of who they were, weren't sure of how to get back, weren't sure how God was going to work through them or change them or bring them to the place they wanted to be. In Jeremiah chapter 29, God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. We say these as our last words today because the last thing we need to hold on to and believe that you need to believe is that God wants, wants to do something through you. God may, in fact, be waiting for you to finally say okay, and to step out, and to let him work. Is it going to be big? I don't know. But if it changes anything, through the power of God, it's going to be good. Amen? Amen.